Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Donald Hartung spent most of his life as the black sheep of the Smith family. As he got older and wanted to retire, he decided that his family was going to be in the way of that plan. This is Monsters. Donald Hartung was born on January 11, 1957, to Von Seal Smith, who went by Bonnie, and a father who was not involved in his life at all. Soon after, Von Seal married Richard Smith, and the couple had two more sons together, Richard Jr., who went by R.T., and John. Donald said that he considered Richard to be his real father, and they moved around a lot because he was an aircraft mechanic in the United States Navy. At some point, they lived in Virginia, and Donald got married and had a son, Donald Hartung Jr. According to Donald, that marriage lasted about 18 years. After divorcing his wife, he moved to Pensacola, Florida, to live near his parents and brothers. When that happened, his relationship with Donald Jr., who was 15 years old at the time of the divorce, fell apart and they rarely spoke to each other. During his testimony, Donald Jr. said that he hadn't seen his father in person since he was 17 years old. At the time of the testimony, he was 40. R.T. worked for the Department of Homeland Security as a computer specialist. He had a normal Monday through Friday schedule. John had worked as a cart collector at the local Walmart since it had opened 20 years prior. During Donald's police interview, the investigator mentioned that John had some developmental disabilities, and Donald seemed confused about what he was talking about. He told the investigator that John was fine and he graduated from high school. Then, when the investigator asked Donald if John drove himself to work, Donald said no, Mama won't let him drive because she's afraid he'll cause an accident because he's slow. So, apparently, John had some developmental disabilities. I believe that Donald wanted to minimize John's disability to make it seem like he was more capable of being involved somehow. It's hard to say. Sometimes it seems like Donald rehearsed his story over and over, then other times he seems to be completely caught off guard. On January 9th, 2019, Bonnie went to a lawyer and had a will drawn up. 
she basically left everything to two sons and made, said she made no provision in the will for the defendant in this case, Donald Wayne Hartung. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. You have um, Donald Wayne Hartung Jr. Yes. in there. And yes. what can you tell us about that? Well, the, the way that I did that was an error on my part because the last paragraph of the will, paragraph 9, uh, she said, I intentionally made no provision herein for the benefit of my son, S-O-N, Donald Wayne Hartung, Jr. And by mistake, I put Jr. there, but it was for her son. And that was not for lack of love or affection, but because he has sufficient assets of his own, and I have made ample provision for him during my lifetime. Okay. And did you review your notes um, to make sure that it was her son she was excluding and not her grandson. Yeah, that was uh, clearly her son. The, the error was on my part by putting Junior. Okay. She intended to exclude Donald Wayne Horton, her son. Okay. Now, um, in the will, Bonnie also did not provide for her grandson, correct? That is correct. So from that point, if Bonnie died, all of her assets would go to her husband, Richard Smith. If he predeceased her, then all of her assets would be split equally between R.T. and John. On January 21, 2012, Richard passed away and made R.T. and John the joint heirs to Bonnie's estate. It turned out that Bonnie was doing pretty well for herself. Despite spending a decent amount of money on her addiction to QVC, she had built her estate to about $800,000 at the time of her death. Not only that, but R.T. and John lived with her their entire lives and always worked, so there was always a decent amount of money coming into the home. Donald lived in a rented home about two miles or three and a quarter kilometers from the Smith home. Donald was a man who had a very consistent routine. Since John had Tuesdays and Wednesdays off of work, and Donald had Mondays and Tuesdays off of work, Donald would go to the Smith house every Tuesday and cook dinner. This gave R.T. an opportunity to work late, since he didn't have to go home and cook dinner himself. During his interview with police, Donald described his actions on Tuesday, July 28, 2015. According to Donald, he arrived at his mother's house at about 1 p.m. with his dog, a boxer named Zena. He always brought Zena with him to the Smith house and kept her outside of the house in their fenced backyard. The Smiths had a white terrier named Bear who was inside. He claimed that he threw a frisbee for Zena for a few minutes in the backyard before going inside. He began cooking dinner at about 2.30 p.m. He made fried chicken, corn, green beans, and biscuits. They don't normally sit down to eat together, so Bonnie had her dinner in her chair in the living room, and John took his dinner back to the den. Donald described that he specifically would make himself a plate, go outside to smoke a cigarette and play with Zena, then he'd come back in and eat. He would also put a helping of dinner in the oven to keep warm for RT to eat when he got home from work. After eating, Donald helped John do the dishes and then he would watch the news with his mother. He claimed to have left the house sometime between 5.30 and 6 p.m., driving back down the road with Zena in the passenger seat. He claimed to have gone home and watched television. R.T. had requested the following day off so he could take John to a doctor's appointment, but nobody showed up for the appointment. One of R.T.'s co-workers, Tammy Duncan, had texted him at about 2.30 p.m. on Wednesday regarding an issue they were having at the office, but she got no response. 
She then texted them again at 3.30 p.m. about a different issue and again got no response, something she said was very unusual. Thursday, RT didn't show up to work, which was concerning since RT was possibly even more rigid with his routine than Donald. According to his boss, Hal McCord, he was an extremely dedicated and reliable employee who had never missed work unannounced. When RT didn't arrive at work again on Friday, July 31st, Hal attempted to call him but got no answer and no returned call. It's important to note that RT's position required him to be on call all the time, so when he was regularly scheduled, he was supposed to be fairly available by phone at any time. When he didn't hear back from RT after some time, Hal decided to drive out to the Smith house to check on his employee. When he arrived at the house, he noticed that there were two cars in the driveway and that one of them was RT's white Toyota Highlander. He knocked on the door multiple times and got no answer, so he called 911 to request a welfare check. Escambia County Sheriff's Deputy Andrew Smith arrived at the Smith residence at 0953 and spoke with Hal about his concerns. Hal was able to give him Donald's name as a relative and after discovering he only lived a few miles away, he drove down to his house and questioned him about his family. After they arrived back at the Smith house, Donald claimed that all three residents should be there and gave them permission to enter. They were able to jimmy the back door of the house open. So as we walk in the back door, I immediately smelled a very foul odor, uh, similar to a dead body. Um, we, it was me, um, Sergeant Neesmith, and Deputy Singleton. Okay. We walked in, um, we ended up going towards the right of the residence, which was through like the living room and the kitchen and down the hallway. Um, I know I saw a small white dog and there was like dog feces, dog feces on the ground. Um, <clears throat> and so we went down the hallway. Um, we, we still weren't sure if there was maybe someone actually in the residence, so we were obviously calling out saying, hey, sheriff's office, you know, come out, whatever. Um, we, as we went down the hallway, we smelled um, an overwhelming smell of a dead body, but we wanted to go back and check the other side of the residence first just to make sure there wasn't no, anyone over there. And let me ask you this. I should sure. ask you first. When you first go in this home, what, what, is your, what is your primary objective? Well, at first, we're just trying to see if anyone's there and maybe injured or something like that. So we, we're really not sure at that point. Obviously, once I walked in, I had that smell, and so... I was kind of assuming basically that there was going to be someone probably dead inside the residence, okay. but we didn't know if there was still someone else there. That was okay. a lot. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So you go from the hallway where you smell the overwhelming smell and you go back toward where? Uh, it was back to the other side of the house. So back through like the living room and the kitchen, okay. um, back to where we initially made entrance. Um, and to the left, there was a laundry room with a door that was closed. So we ended up deciding to go through that closed door. Um, as I opened the door, I immediately saw blood spatter on some cardboard boxes that were sitting up on a bed. Um, and then on the floor directly in front of me, there was like a large mass of like clothing and blankets. Inside the home, the house seemed unoccupied until they opened one of the bedroom doors and found some blood spatter. Um, so do the blood spatter, I put on some gloves and then I started to peel back the clothing <clears throat> and the blankets. Um, and as I started to peel it back, I saw a, uh, a large shoe. Um, it looked on, to be on like a white man's body. I touched the ankle, it was cold. Um, then there was another large mass to my right. Um, it was like on like a love seat. So I did the same. I started peeling the clothing back and the blankets. Um, and then I saw a, a, it was a bare white foot. It also appeared to be a male. 
Um, I touched it. It was cold, and there was a lividity present. Okay, let me stop you real quick. You say you're you're peeling the the layers back. Is it like the entire mound, or is it just a small area? Just a small area. Like I would just peel it back just a little bit just to get to whatever was basically hiding or hidden underneath the the blanket. So I wasn't peeling them all the way off. I probably peeled them maybe a couple inches back. The deputies discovered two dead bodies in the home, both covered by piles of clothes. These bodies were in the den, which is on one side of the house, so they checked the other side of the house. Due to the previous smell that we had encountered in the hallway, we went back to the other end of the residence, um, went down the hallway. There was another bedroom door that was closed, um, so we opened up that door, and there was a huge mound of clothing uh, and blankets in, on the floor of that bedroom. Uh, I did the same thing. I started just slowly peeling back a little bit. Um, I saw a, um, it appeared to be like an elderly female's hand. It was a white female. Um, touched it. It was cold. There was some lividity in the fingers. And so I pronounced her at approximately 11.17. While deputies searched the house, Donald waited outside in the driveway. After informing Donald that his family members were dead, he was asked to go to the sheriff's office for questioning. He took Bear in his car back to his house and was driven to the sheriff's office by a deputy. The interview started off with the usual questions about his family and their histories and routines. It's clear that the investigators suspect Donald's involvement early on, though. There was no sign of forced entry, so they asked him if he had a key to his mother's house. He says he doesn't because someone's always home and he never needed a key. When deputies arrived on the scene, all the doors and windows were locked, but the back door, which was the door they primarily used, didn't have the deadbolt locked, just the handle. They were able to use a credit card to push the latch of the handle over and get into the house. It would make sense for the door to be locked that way if Donald didn't have a key. He wouldn't have been able to lock the deadbolt from outside after leaving, so he just locked the handle and shut the door. After Donald tells his version of events, Special Agent Matt Infinger from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement asked him what he was watching on television, but Donald couldn't remember. Crime scene technicians were called in and they had a mountain of work ahead of them to collect any evidence they could. Bonnie spent all day watching the QVC channel and she made an order every day. When Hal arrived at the house, he testified that there were multiple packages sitting on the front porch. The house was packed with boxes. Donald told Agent Infinger that his mother had grown up poor and wasn't able to afford clothes, and she told him, quote, Now I can have all the clothes I want, end quote. Inside the home, they found a safe in RT's closet that was unlocked, and inside there was a red envelope with $1,809 in cash, plus various white envelopes with cash adding up to $11,842. There was a box with a necklace in it in John's room, multiple cell phones, a laptop, two Kindles, two iPads, and a Wi-Fi hotspot. It seemed that robbery was not a motive. They found a hammer in the kitchen. They found the copper jacket and the projectile from a 9mm bullet separated on the living room floor. At first, investigators thought that all three of the victims had been shot, but once the medical examiner arrived, they realized that both Bonnie and John were bludgeoned on their heads and their throats were slit. RT was shot in the head, and his throat was also slit. It looked like Donald had used a hammer to hit John on the head three times as he was watching television in the den. He then used a steak knife to slice his throat, which severed his carotid artery. 
Next, he approached Bonnie from behind and threw a blanket over her head. He hit her with the hammer eight times and sliced her throat, severing her carotid artery as well. R.T. had been shot in the head, but the bullet had traveled through his ear and between the skin and his skull on the right side of his head. That wouldn't have been fatal, but it likely knocked R.T. down, if not completely out. Donald then sliced his throat, which not only severed his carotid artery, but also injured his spinal cord, which would have paralyzed his legs, if not his arms as well. The medical examiner was not able to pinpoint an exact time of death based on the bodies because there were too many variable factors. Instead, the medical examiner used the human elements of the investigation to give an estimated time of death. The stomach contents of Bonnie showed corn, and John showed corn and green beans. So it was apparent that the last thing they had eaten was the dinner that Donald had made them. R.T. had crinkle fries in his stomach, which Tammy Duncan testified that Ron had eaten during lunch on the 28th. John was wearing the same clothes he left work in. He worked at the Department of Homeland Security, so you know the building had surveillance. He can be seen leaving the building at the end of the day in the exact same outfit he was found in. He even still had his work ID badge around his neck. Bonnie had taken the Tuesday morning medication from her pill organizer, but not the Tuesday evening medication. Tuesday's newspaper was found in the garbage, but Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays were all stuffed into the box by the mailbox. John had a doctor's appointment on Wednesday morning that he didn't show up to. The last outgoing activity on either RT's work or personal phones was the call he made to his mother as he left work at 6.46pm on Tuesday the 28th. Once Agent Infinger received more information about the investigation, he brought Donald back in for another interview. This was at about 1.45 a.m. on August 1st. Remember when Donald couldn't remember what he had watched on television? Well, he made it a point to tell the agent exactly what he was watching this time. So you can't tell me what you watched? So, I mean... Well, no, I can't tell you what I watched, not for sure. I can tell you... I can... I can tell you that I watched them. Well, I mean, if I say anything long enough, I might be able to remember, but... Oh, uh, let's see. I, I can't recall. What time do you think you left? Well, I mean, I didn't leave right then. I, I was there for a while. I'd say I probably left maybe 5.30... 5.36 o'clock, and you asked me a question earlier about what I was watching on TV, and I just turned the TV on, I really wasn't paying attention to it, but it was who wants to be a millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? How appropriate. This defendant had days to rehearse his timeline, what time he went there, what time he left, and it's always the same. But when he's asked about something specific, he can't come up with anything because it's not true. And what he did in between the time of the first interview and the time of the second interview is go figure out what comes on at the same time that he's supposed to be home. Who wants to be a millionaire? This is called How to Make Yourself Look Guilty 101. Prior to this interview, investigators had searched Donald's home, where they found a Ouija board along with some Wiccan books and artifacts. Donald admitted to being a Wiccan, but he said that he had never performed any sort of sacrifice and that he was not part of any group. 
he simply practiced the spiritual elements on his own. This is where the case gets its misunderstood title, the Blue Moon Murders. Historically, a blue moon was when there was more than one full moon in a season, but in modern times it's become accepted as more than one full moon in a month. They happen every few years, and July 28, 2015, just so happened to be one. After seeing the Wiccan possessions in Donald's house, the investigators decided that he had killed his family in a bizarre sacrificial ritual that was completed by Wiccans on the blue moon. It involved spilling the blood of the sacrifice, hitting them on the head, and then covering their body to keep them warm. Based on what they had found at the scene, it certainly looked like that's exactly what Donald had done. Except, that ritual doesn't exist. Even the slightest research into the Wiccan religion shows that they worship the earth and all living creatures. One of their main tenets is to love and respect all living beings, so even animal sacrifice is not performed anywhere in Wicca, let alone human sacrifice. This myth persisted so much in this case that the defense brought in Paul Larson, an ordained minister at the Circle Sanctuary, a Wiccan minister and expert in religious studies. Is there anything such as sacrificing either of animals or people in the Wicca religion? No, there is not. There certainly was a tradition of, of both animal and human sacrifice in the ancient world, but one of the things that characterizes the modern religious world is that we have abandoned completely uh, human sacrifice, and outside of a few uh, smaller instances, most uh, religions now uh, have abandoned animal sacrifice as well. Does the Wicca religion practice animal sacrifice? No. On top of that, there's no specific Wiccan ritual performed on a blue moon. Can you tell me if there are any blue moon rituals or any history in the Wiccan religion of sacrifice on the blue moon? No. Um, we do honor the cycles of the moon, and so it is common for uh, rituals to be performed on the full or the new moon, uh, but they're not uh, the major rituals of the religion. Uh, the what major type of rituals might these be? Uh, the uh, lunar rituals? Yes, sir. Uh, they would be simply celebrating the fullness of the moon and the uh, accomplishment of some uh, major task or purpose that the person has been working on, or if it's a new moon, then it would be used for the starting of a process of spiritual development or, or some sort of uh, work toward a goal. So either the, the culmination during the full moon or the beginning of a process in the new moon uh, would be the types of uh, purposes for which rituals are conducted. Does a blue moon itself, which is two full moons in one month, does that have any importance uh, to the Wicca religion? Not at all. I mean, not, not beyond the fact of its being a full moon, but uh, the blue moon, because of its uh, rarity, is, is no more important than any other full moon. Investigators claimed over and over again that the killings were ritualistic, but Paul disagreed. He pointed out that the bodies were killed and covered haphazardly. If it was any type of ritual, the bodies would have been displayed and there would have been other ritualistic elements, such as candles, incense, or pentagrams. This was an average murder that someone tried to cover up. Agent Infinger asked Donald if he knew about his mother having any insurance or a will and he said no. 
He was let go, but officially arrested on October 27, 2015. Over the course of the FDLE's investigation, they found a DNA belonging to Donald on the inside of RT's belt that he was wearing. Based on the blood at the scene, it appeared as if RT had been rolled so that his back pockets were accessible. RT's wallet and keys were never found at the scene. The DNA on the belt was a combination of both Donald and RT, and it was 1.1 billion times more likely to be a combination of RT and Donald than RT and someone else. RT had a zippered case that he kept his checkbook and paperwork in, and Donald's DNA was found on the little zipper handle. His DNA was found on RT's checkbook. It was found on a black purse that was found in the garbage. It turned out to be Bonnie's purse, and Donald's DNA was found specifically on the latch across the top of the opening. Donald's DNA was also found on the hammer found in the kitchen, which also tested positive for blood, and had RT, John, and Bonnie's DNA on it as well. There was one very important piece of evidence that the crime scene investigators found in the garbage. They had transported the entire garbage can back to the lab, with all of its contents still in it. As they emptied it out layer by layer, they found a cigarette butt with Donald's DNA on it on top of bloody paper towels. So Donald had used paper towels to clean up, took a smoke break, and tossed his butt in the garbage on top. The defense argued that the contents could have moved around while it was being transported back to the lab, but this is why this is an invalid argument. Was the cigarette moved a little bit, maybe when the trash can was transported? Maybe as Ms. Rollins is taking these out? Maybe. But it's not going to move up when it's moved around. It's going to move down, which means that cigarette butt was actually maybe a little bit higher in the trash can than where you saw it. And the whole point is this, it shouldn't be there. It is smack dab in the middle of cleanup of cooking and murder. On top of the investigation by FDLE, the Department of Homeland Security held its own investigation into the death. Kevin Pelomino from the DHS Federal Protective Service testified that it was standard procedure to investigate every death by an employee of the DHS. RT's job carried no specific threats that would have made them think his death was related to his job, but an official investigation cleared that as a possibility. During the investigation, Donald's timeline of events started to fall apart when they spoke to a neighbor of the Smith residence. George Chittenden had been a New Orleans firefighter but retired after sustaining an injury. He and his wife then started a wedding planning business before retiring for good and settling into their house on Deerfield Drive next to the Smith family. He was home most days and spent most of his time outside either working on something in his backyard or relaxing on his front porch. He testified that once he had retired, he refused to wear a watch. Did you see Mr. Hartung leave the Smith family, family home on July 28th? Yes, I did. And I know your watch list at that time, but do you remember approximately what time it was? Twilight. Okay. And can you tell us what twilight is? Well, it's once the sun sets, so to speak, um, but it is still uh, light enough. There's no harsh shadows, but light enough to carry on normal business. Do you remember when the sunset was back then? I'm sorry? Do you remember when sunset was back then? Uh, I think it was about 
40, 46 or somewhere in there. Where were you physically located when you saw Mr. Hartung leave the Smith home? Uh, I was actually <coughs> uh, exiting the door of the house to go sit on the porch. Um, and as I opened the door and began to walk out, I saw Mr. Hartung's automobile and Mr. Hartung uh, just passing the brick column on my front porch and going north and then turning and going up toward uh, Klondike, which would be east. He said that when Donald had arrived at the Smith house, he had been on the side of his house, facing the Smith property, organizing sockets and a new toolbox that his wife had just gotten for him. He said, though normally Donald always brought his dog, Zena, with him, on the 28th, he didn't. He could usually see Donald go into the backyard, smoke a cigarette, and play with Zena from time to time while he was visiting his mother. But that day, he didn't. He saw him come out of the house twice to smoke, but there was no dog. At any point that same day, July 28th, did you see Richard um, come into the neighborhood? Yes. And what was he driving? He was driving the white Toyota. And where did you first see him and where were you? Uh, I was on the porch um, and I saw him as he uh, approached from Klondike on Deerfield, about 600 feet away. Okay. Now, did you actually see RT? Um, like, did you see his face or just his car? Uh, be yes, because of the position of my property, when people come up over the, there's a rise there in the street. When they come up over the rise, uh, you can you can see their their face, uh, and you know, and of course, as they get closer, they have to slow for the turn, and then you can see much better. And yes, you can recognize anybody. Okay. And was RT by himself or was he with anybody? Uh, he was by himself. Okay. Did you see RT that day on the 28th before or after you saw Donald Hartung leave the residence? It was before Mr. Hartung left the residence. How, how or why do you remember that? Just sequence of events. Okay. Uh, and happened. what what was the sequence of events on the 28th? Uh, I actually saw <coughs> RT leave um, for work. Um, reason uh, my dressing room looks out onto their driveway. Um, but then, like I said, early afternoon, I saw Mr. Hartong arrive, and then. Uh, Later on, I saw RT come home, and then I saw Mr. Hartung leave. George testified that he couldn't give an exact length of time that RT was home before Donald left, but it was enough time for George to go into the house, change his shoes, and do a couple of chores. Then he went back out onto the front porch and saw Donald drive away. He did testify that he didn't see anyone else come or go from the Smith house after Donald left on the 28th at around 7.45 p.m. He was also there when deputies arrived for a welfare check, and he described what he saw when the deputies came out of the house after their discovery. As he exited the gate, apparently somebody had asked him, 
how it was, and he said, it's bad, it's very bad. Okay. And um, was Mr. Hartum standing near you when that comment was made? Yes. Okay. And um, what was his reaction or response? None that I could determine. The one thing that the defense made sure was clear to the jury was that George did not hear a gunshot. George said that his air conditioner was broken, so he had all the windows in the house open and believes he would have been able to hear a gunshot from the Smith house, but confirmed that he didn't. Of course, this brought up the idea that Donald used a silencer when he shot RT. That's impossible, though, and the defense explains why. You can buy, the, you can buy silencers in Florida. With the appropriate and, documentation, yes. And there are requirements in buying silencers. Yes. And you have to clear a background check, first of all. Yes. And you have to buy a fe what I think is called a federal tax stamp. Yes, sir. And to obtain a federal tax stamp, you have to go through certain procedures with the United States government. Correct. And then the store where you intend to buy the silencer has to okay it. Yes, I believe so, yep. And then you get your silencer. Correct. There would be a record kept by the stores that sell these silencers because of, of getting the tax stamp. Is that correct? I, I believe the ATF maintains a record of them, yes. And as long as they've been selling silencers, you've had to have that tax stamp. Yes. At least since 1930s. Yes. Do you know if any tax stamp was ever issued to Mr. Hartung to buy a silencer? I don't know. Oh, there would be records if Donald legally purchased a silencer in the state of Florida? Oh, okay. I guess that ends that. Right. You think he planned out the murder of his family and went to legally purchase a silencer ahead of time, making sure to fill out the proper forms? I know a lot of criminals are idiots, but I'm going to give Donald the benefit of the doubt on this one. Not only could he have purchased a silencer illegally, he could have pretty easily made one. Making a homemade silencer is not extremely difficult. If you've watched the video I made about Sabrina Lamone, you may recall that her boyfriend built a pretty sophisticated silencer out of various auto parts and crap you can get at the hardware store. He testified that it worked extremely well. Even though it seems like a Hollywood trope, people have successfully used something as simple as a 2-liter soda bottle to suppress the long-range noise from a firearm. A silencer, which is more accurately called a suppressor, doesn't really make the noise of a gunshot quiet at close range, but it helps dissipate the sound so it can't travel longer ranges. This makes it more effective at making the neighbors not hear it as opposed to someone else in the house. In the movies, the suppressor is silent and someone 10 feet away can't hear anything, and that's the actual Hollywood myth. It looks like the prosecutor is way ahead of me. Our records kept and I'm talking about firearms, sorry, mm -hmm. to jump around, or silencers. Are records kept on purchases between individuals? No. So if you buy something on the street, is there going to be a record? No. If you buy something from a friend or someone you know, is that going to be on record? No. And are you familiar with some, like, makeshift-type silencers? Yes. What can you use as a makeshift-type silencer? Uh, as I said earlier, it can be... Anything that reduces the speed and velocity of the gas coming out. So, um, I've I've known of uh, people using um, Coke bottles, uh, air air fuel or uh, sorry air filters, um, fuel filters, anything like that. Um, it can let's say just slow down that gas coming out of the gun. 
Thank you. The defense asked if there was any makeshift silencer found at the scene, and the answer was no, but it wouldn't be if it was attached to the gun. I mean, they also didn't find the gun at the scene. Does that mean RT wasn't shot? The star witness for the prosecution was a jailhouse informant named Marlon Purefoy. He was in jail awaiting trial for attempted murder for attacking someone with a hammer when he struck up a friendship with Donald. They were in the same pod, which is a room that had 12 two-man cells. They didn't share a cell, but after they began talking about the Wiccan religion, Marlon lied and said he was into voodoo as a means of keeping Donald talking about Wicca, which Marlon found interesting. He testified that Donald never left his cell, but he would have other inmates come get him and tell him he wanted to talk to him. It was during these conversations that Donald started opening up about the crime. Um, did Mr. Hartung tell you if he had any children? He said he had one child, a son. And did he tell you anything personal about his son? Yeah, he said his son got molested when he was three years old by his brother, uh, John. And um, did Mr. Hartung tell you um, wh what, if anything, came of that? He said he told his mother about um, his son got molested. His mother said she didn't believe it. And she said John was special. And see, that, that made him mad right there. He started, like, hating his mom and stuff behind that. Did he tell you um, anything about what his relationship was like with his mother? He said he hated his mother because the way she treated him, she treated him different from the other boys. Did he say why? They had different daddies. Any other reasons he was upset with his mom? Yeah, and she, uh, he, she left him out the wheel. That really made him mad, he said. And what about um, Mr. Hartung's son ab about the will? Oh, she left him out, too. That made him mad. Did he tell you, um, I guess his mom told him that he was out of the will? Yeah, he said his mama told him back in 2012 that he was out of the will, him and his son. Now, I'm not a fan of jailhouse informants. More often than not, they're lying to try to get themselves some sort of benefit. And to be fair, Marlon did benefit from this. He was facing a possible life sentence, and the prosecutor agreed to max his sentence out at 30 years. The other problem with jailhouse informants is that there are cases where dirty prosecutors feed the information to the informant to guarantee a conviction. A study at the Northwestern University School of Law found that 46% of wrongful convictions involved a jailhouse informant. So right off the bat, I tend to distrust Marlon Purefoy, except that he does know details that he couldn't have gotten anywhere besides Donald. The defense tried to make it look like Marlon had gone into Donald's cell and looked through his legal paperwork while Donald was away, but details about Donald Jr. being molested wouldn't have been in his paperwork. Donald Jr. testified that there was an incident involving John when he was young. Um, yo, you're talking about from when I was a child? Yes. Uh, yeah, there was a situation with the job when I was a kid. Um, he exposed himself to me when I was a child, and... Uh, I had brought it up to my mom probably a couple of days later, and because of that, uh, a rift had formed between them. I don't think they, I, don't, I mean, I was a kid at the time, so yes, I don't sir. know what happened behind closed doors, but um, I know they didn't talk for a good period of time. Okay. And I know at some point in time, they, everybody moved to Pensacola, uh, my grandparents, my grandparents and John R.T. and all of them. Okay. And I, I'm, I apologize. You said that John exposed himself to you. Yes. When you were a child. Yes. Okay. Um, and you told your dad? I told my mom about it. Okay, and yeah. then did your mom tell your dad? 
Yes. Okay. And then did dad go to your grandmother? I believe so, yes. Okay. And then whose side did um, your grandmother appear to take? Oh, she, uh, she took John's side. Okay. It's pretty obvious. Do you remember about how old John was at the time? I th I'd like to say they're 10 to 12 years older than me. So okay. if I was four-ish, they would have been teenagers at that okay. point in time. Teenagers as in like mid-teens? Mid yeah, mid-teens, 15, 16. I'm not sure exactly. Okay, I, I understand. And I'm yeah. sorry to bring it up. Marlon added more details. He said on a Tuesday, he always goes there on a Tuesday. He said he always goes there on a Tuesday? Yeah, yes, ma'am. And when he went over there on the Tuesday, did he tell you um, what he did? Okay, so he first said, he, he, when he went over there, he said he left his dog, Zena, because he knew what he was going to do. So he left the dog over there, then he went over there and cooked. Okay, did he tell you what he cooked? He said he cooked chicken and corn, I think screen beans or something like that, and biscuits. Okay, and um, after he cooked, did he oh, tell you what he did? Okay, he said he went and took some cameras down because his mother got hurt one time. She fell, and I guess the brother Richard had installed some cameras. He took them down. Okay, all right. And um, did he say if the family ate or not? Say that again? Yeah, he, yeah they he, ate. Okay, and then what happened after they ate? He, he said he killed his brother after that, okay. which is John. I'm sorry? He killed his brother, John. Okay. Did he tell you um, how he killed his brother, John? He said he hit him in the head from behind and cut his throat. Did he tell you what he hit him with? I think he said a hammer. I can't recall. Okay. And then did you say he slit his throat? He said he cut his throat. Cut his throat. Yeah. Did he tell you where, um, where John was when this happened? He said it was like in, like in a den watching TV. Now, a lot of these details would be in Donald's paperwork, but one thing that was not in any police documents was the name of Donald's dog. He would have had to get that information from Donald. He also knew that RT had installed cameras in the house after Bonnie had taken a bad spill one day. Donald talks about going over to his mother's house to help her after a fall during his interview, but he never said anything about RT installing cameras because of it. That wouldn't be something I would think he would be able to gather from Donald's legal paperwork. Then he dropped this bombshell on the investigators. Um, did he tell you what he did after he um, did that to John? He went to his mother, and then he, he tortured her so she could tell the uh, accommodation for the safes and stuff. He said he tortured her, I'm sorry? He tortured her. How? He cut a, a left pinky finger so he can tell the combination for the safes and stuff. Okay. And did he say if he got the combinations to the safe? Yeah, she told him where it was in a black purse. Okay. And um, did he say what else he did to his mom? Did he say he hit her in the head and slit her throat? Did he say what he hit his mom in the head with? No, he didn't. I can't recall. He just said he hit her in the head. Did he tell you where um, his mother was? In the, in, the, in the front room watching TV. Okay, after he um, did this to his brother and his mom, did he say what he did? He said he went and got the stuff, like money out of the safe and stuff. Okay. In his mama's room. 
He said there was a safe in his mom's room? Yeah, in the closet. When Marlon came forward claiming he had information about Donald Hartung, investigators knew nothing about Bonnie being tortured or that there was a second safe in the closet in Bonnie's room. That safe wasn't located until the scene was cleared and the crew came in and cleaned out the house. As they pulled everything out, they put the possessions into a storage facility and as they pulled up the carpet in Bonnie's bedroom, they found a safe that had been cemented into the floor in her closet. It turned out that crime scene investigators had found a piece of paper with a series of numbers on it in Bonnie's handwriting. That was a piece of paper that she normally kept in her purse. You know, the black one that was recovered from the garbage that had Donald's DNA on the latch. The medical examiner found that the tip of Bonnie's left pinky finger was missing. She testified that it was not a clean cut, and it looked like it could have been taken off by the claw of the hammer. So they listed it as a defensive wound like she had put up her hands when she was getting struck on the head with the hammer and lost her fingertip. It turned out that Donald had chopped it off with something, maybe the claw of the hammer, in order to force his mother to give him the combinations to the safes. She told him they were written on a piece of paper in her purse, and when he found what he was looking for, he killed her. Agent Infinger testified that there was no mention of torture in any of the police reports. Marlon mentioned that clothes were piled on the bodies to throw off the time of death, which was not mentioned in the police reports. Marlon testified that Donald told him he already had a change of clothes at the Smith house, so after the murder, he cleaned up, changed his clothes, put the dirty clothes in a plastic bag, and took them with him. Marlon said that Donald explained that that's why investigators found no blood in his car. The detail that no blood was found in Donald's car was not mentioned in any reports. The only other place Marlon could have gotten those details was directly from Donald. Unless the prosecution fed them to Marlon, and if that's the case, then this whole trial is a moot point. I've said it other times, why would a person confess a crime to somebody they just met in jail? It's definitely not common, but it happens. Marlon said that Donald was cocky and believed he was going to get away with it. The defense only had a few witnesses. One was the religious expert and Wiccan minister Paul Larson. They also called upon a forensic pathologist named Dr. Jonathan Arden. Dr. Arden was basically there to attempt to discredit the medical examiner and claim the time of death was able to be determined medically and that it had to be July 29th or later. First, he explained that the dog would have fed on the bodies if they had been left in the house for around three days. It's actually been documented that pets like cats and dogs won't hesitate to feed on the body of their owner if they have access to it and are out of their normal food. They won't hold off until they're starving and eat their owner as a last resort. They will actually move on to the body immediately. The problem with Dr. Arden's testimony is that he was completely unaware that the bodies were all in bedrooms with the doors closed. The dog didn't have access to the bodies. On top of that, the crime scene investigators confirmed that there was both food and water still in the dog's dishes. We used to have a Yorkshire Terrier that my wife and I got as a puppy, and he lived to be 15 years old. We would just make sure his food bowl was full every few days, and he would just eat when he was hungry. He never scarfed food, and he was never overweight, so it was easy to just make sure his food was available for him for days at a time. I can only assume the Terrier Bear was the same way. Next, Dr. Arden claimed that the bodies would have shown signs of insect activity if they had been in the house since the 28th. Of course, that would be expected if the bodies were out in the open, but these bodies were covered with clothes. 
Well, they certainly would provide some interference. <clears throat> Whether they would definitively prevent all flies from getting there 100%, I can't say. It would, it would likely interfere with the process, though. Okay. So the clothes piled on the bodies may have kept the flies away from the bodies 100%. He can't say, meaning he doesn't know. He even says it was likely that it interfered with the process. Then he goes on to repeat that there should have been insect activity on the bodies. But you just said there was a variable that you can't account for. This is apparently Dr. Arden's calling card. Getting paid by defense counsel to testify that something should have happened, even though he doesn't have all the necessary data. The main point of his testimony is to claim that the medical examiner is wrong, and she should have been able to determine a time of death based on the body's temperature and the room temperature when the bodies were found. He says that medical factors are more important than human factors. The human factors in this case that he's disregarding are Bonnie took her Tuesday morning medication last and didn't take her Tuesday evening medication, John missed his Wednesday doctor's appointment, RT didn't use his phone for anything after 6.46 p.m. on Tuesday. RT was wearing the exact same clothes he had on when he left work, with his badge still on. Tuesday's dinner for RT was still in the oven. Tuesday was the last time the newspaper was brought in. Those things are all just a coincidence. Bonnie's body was farther along in the decomposition process than RT's or John's. The logical answer was because she had about three times more clothes piled on top of her, which kept her body warmer. Dr. Arden said that Bonnie might have decomposed faster than the others because she was obese and that would keep her body warmer. But when he talks about determining John and RT's time of death, he also categorizes them as obese. So then we're back to square one as to why Bonnie decomposed faster. Then, he talks about how obese people have more fat, which makes their bodies cool down slower, and admits that nobody knows for sure how that changes the rate of the body cooling. They can go by literature of an average, but they can't be sure of exactly how much their obesity or the clothes piled on top of them changed the rate. Also, nobody knows what the temperature in the house was every day from the 28th to the 31st. They recorded the temperature in the house on the 31st after the bodies were discovered. But what if it was hotter or cooler on the 29th and the 30th? There are too many unknown factors, so he's just guessing. Basically, the medical examiner said she couldn't give a time of death based on body temperature because she didn't want to guess. The prosecution has no problem pointing out how this testimony is absolute garbage. So, disregarding what uh, you called human factors, you only relied on two things, and that's rigor mortis and body temperature. And you relied on it knowing that there are various factors that you cannot account for scientifically. Yes, sir, that's part of that process. So given those variables, can you say these deaths did not occur on Tuesday? Human can... factors, medical factors, can you say, within a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, these bodies were not killed on Tuesday? I cannot tell you it's impossible. I can tell you that Tuesday is inconsistent with the scientific and medical evidence. At the end of that clip, the sound of the prosecutor's voice makes it clear that he's rolling his eyes. I hate when people like this throw away their professional standards and give testimonies full of quack theories for a defense. 
he has apparently given up all hope of ever being taken seriously as a doctor. So what's more likely, that this doctor's guesswork is 100% accurate and Bonnie just happened to not take her medication, while John just happened to not show up for his appointment and RT also just happened to not answer his texts, or is this guy just full of shit? The fact that he thinks he did a better autopsy with notes and pictures than the medical examiner answers this question. Donald's defense was already weak enough, but the prosecutor closed out their case with a little detail that I hadn't picked up on, but it's a really good catch. When law enforcement responded to the scene, they went and got Mr. Hartung, brought him back, and the officer that had been waiting there said, you know, do you think your family's here? You know, what can you tell us about him? And he said, well, the two cars are there, meaning mom and Richard, so they should be there. This is on a Friday. Well, what about the other brother? He said he should be there too. This is on Friday. If John was alive, he would have been at work. This defendant said he was there because he knew he was there. That was the last place he left him after he killed him. On January 29, 2020, Donald Hartung was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. He was eligible for the death penalty. At his sentencing hearing, Donald said, quote, I loved my jury. They paid close attention, but your honor, they were duped, and so were you, end quote. He asked for the judge to declare a mistrial because his lawyers hadn't allowed him to testify. The judge denied his request because Donald had previously waived his right to testify. The judge said, quote, You knowingly and voluntarily waived your right to testify during trial. That was the decision you made, end quote. The jury in the penalty phase decided to hand down three consecutive life sentences. Donald Hartung will never get out of prison. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. 
Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. 